Lord, we love you and thank you that we get to be children of God. Adopted because of your great love for us, you sent your son. And as we receive him, your spirit brings us into your family. And we are so grateful for that, Lord. As we dive into these last couple chapters of Judges tonight, Father, give us your grace. Speak to us through your word, I pray. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, remember that the last five chapters of Judges are much more of an appendix to the book of Judges. Um, and so they don't really seem to follow the chronological order of the book. We're going to see that a little more uh, tonight. These five chapters surround two Levites. The first was Micah's priest in chapter 17 and 18, um, who was a Levite. He was living in Bethlehem. Micah hired him uh, basically to be the priest before his idol and shrine. And the priest said, sure, why not? And then when Dan came through and stole Micah's idol, they hired the priest to go with them. So that, that wasn't good. Tonight, we're going to see over these three chapters the account of another Levite um, who, for lack of a better word, well, he married a woman he probably shouldn't have. Some issues happened. A civil war ensued. Um, yeah, I mean, just, right? Kind of, that escalated quickly is what we're going to see. Um, and what this shows is that the priesthood had become corrupted. And the corruption of the priesthood shows that the nation had pretty much reached rock bottom. And we'll see that again later as we get into... Um, um, really, as we get into First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we're going to see quite often that when the king's doing well and he makes sure that the priests are doing what they're supposed to do, well, you know what? The nation fares pretty well. And when the king goes downhill and the priesthood goes downhill, well, the nation follows suit. Proverbs 29, verse 2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Now, I'm not saying that that's a commentary on our current political situation in our country. That would be incorrect of me to do. All I'm saying is that Proverbs 29.2 illustrates a simple point. When the righteous are in authority, things go well. People rejoice. When the wicked person rules... The people groan. It starts in chapter 19 that it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, right, were reminded that there was not a human king, nor was there any recognition of God as king. And the people were simply doing whatever they wanted. So when there was no king in Israel, first one goes on that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. 
Anybody see a problem with that? Right? The Levites, the priests, were allowed to get married. There's nothing wrong with that. But a concubine was different. And most likely, even though she was from Bethlehem in Judah, we don't necessarily have an indication that she was Jewish. And my guess is the reason he didn't actually marry her, right? This is just my guess. Judges doesn't say this. So take it as what it is. It's my guess um, that she wasn't Jewish. And that's why he didn't actually marry her, but took her as a concubine. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread. Afterward, go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Um, then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. Now, just real quick. Right? There's a saying that you, that you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. Um, <laughs> when it comes to... Uh, it, that's what this seems to be saying. Right? Stay the night. Let your heart be merry. Is that they weren't just having a cup of coffee and a bagel. Right? There was, there was something more... Um, being drunk, because we're going to see this happen again. Um, verse 7, when the man stood to depart, the father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. He rose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart from the young woman's father and said, please refresh your heart. So apparently, even though his daughter was a whore, he didn't want her to leave. I'm just saying what the Bible says. Um, please refresh. Yeah, that's very possible. Maybe, maybe she was bringing some income to the house. Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon and both of them ate. When the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow, go your way early so that you may get home. Uh, I, I see a pattern. Um, verse 10. However, the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. Uh, it, was also, it was called Jebus in that day because it was occupied by the Jebusites, or Jebus, however you want to say it. Um, with him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he and his servant, so he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside then to go into Lodge of Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. So, long story short, this Levite gets himself a concubine. Um, 
later we do see that her father is called his father-in-law because a concubine was kind of like a wife. Um, women didn't have any rights in that society or culture anyway. So a wife or a concubine, it really didn't make all that much difference. Um, but they called him his father-in-law, so uh, I wrote in my notes she was his concubine. Right, day over, day again, over and over and over again, day after day, father-in-law convinces him to stay, gets him drunk in the morning, they eat and drink all day long. Finally, he says, nope, I gotta go. So they take off, and the, the servant says, hey, let's, let's stay at uh, Jebus, or Jebus, or Jerusalem, however you wanna say it. And he goes, nope, I'm not staying with foreigners. Bad move, Levite. It's coming, it's not gonna be pretty in Gibeah. So they arrive at Gibeah, which was part of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, so they had only really traveled about eight or ten miles, which if they had left in the afternoon, uh, I mean, they, they walked eight or ten miles is a long walk because that's about how far Gibeah is from Bethlehem. When he gets there, no one would take them in, so he decides to sleep in the town square. Now, this was a culturally accepted practice because typically the city gate would be closed. You would be safe if you slept in the town square, if the weather was nice. Uh, the two angels wanted to do that in Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis chapter 19. However, just like in Genesis, it's not going to be a good idea here either. Um, there's also the issue that no one would take them in. Um, this was part of their culture to be hospitable and to not be hospitable, right? And, and in that culture, you were hospitable to anyone. But then as a Jewish town to not be hospitable to a Levite was, I mean, culturally much worse. And uh, when you took someone in, you were responsible for them, you were required to protect them, to not be hospitable, or to let some harm befall your guest, you became responsible for that. In Hebrews 13 too, we're told not to forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. In Matthew 25, 37 through 40, the righteous will answer him, right? This is, uh, well, I'll just read it, then you'll know where I'm at. Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and not take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I think hospitality is a lost art in our day. I certainly know a number of people who have the gift of hospitality. Several people in our church certainly have the gift of hospitality. Um, but we live in a very different day and age. Taking a stranger into your house today might not go as well as it may have in a different culture and in a different time. Uh, so, verse 16. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim, who was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. When he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am come there. I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord, but there is no one who will take me into account. 
Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So this old man, he comes in. He was from the mountains of Ephraim, but he was staying in Gibeah. He sees the Levite and says, No, what are you doing here? Where are you going? Right? All of this gets explained. And the Levite says, You know, we have everything we need, just nobody would take us in. And the guy says, Oh, no. I'm going to take care of you. And he says, let all of your needs be my responsibility. I love that line. Let all of your needs be my responsibility. What a better world we would live in if each of us made the well-being of others our responsibility. Philippians 2.4 reminds us, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests Verse 22, it goes downhill. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Look! Here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. Uh, women had quite the high place in that society. Also shows how seriously you were supposed to take your responsibility of taking care of someone who came into your house. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. When the woman came as the day was da da uh, dawning sorry, and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was, so it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the door of the house and went to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at, the, fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let's be going. Wow. Dude, what a jerk. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. So it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak What do, you, what do you even say about this passage? Right? We see the man um, protecting his house guest. Culturally, that was his responsibility. Um, notice what he calls the men. Wicked and vile. Scripture here also calls them perverted. What did they want to do? Well, they, they the men of the city wanted to rape another man. Um, it shows how just perverted they were, you know, and lots of people like to try to pretend that the Bible doesn't speak against homosexuality. Um, but here they might say, oh, it's just because they wanted to rape him. But no, that's, that's not the case. That's part of it, but it's the, the whole of it. 
It was the same thing that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed over. And these guys wanted to do the same thing. So the owner of the house offers the concubine and his daughter. Nice guy. When they said no, the Levite throws his concubine outside and the men of the city rape her to death. When this is discovered the next morning, dude with his callous attitude takes her home, cuts her up, sends it to all the tribes of Israel. Says, consider it, confer and speak up. In other words, what should we do to the city whose people acted so wickedly? Now, I will point out, just for good measure, that there's only the places in the world where Christianity has had an influence do we see women treated as equal. In the places in the world where Christianity does not have such an influence, women are still treated very, very poorly. Oftentimes just treated like property. And you see in places where Christianity's influence is lessening that women are once again being treated like objects and the true well-being of women is not considered by the society. I mean, look at our world. Look at our culture. Look at what passes for entertainment and music. Look at what takes up over one-third of the internet. Right? Where women are nothing but objectified and treated like property and exploited and I mean, it's, it's awful. Think about the fact that women are now being called birthing persons. Right? No, there's men and there's women. There aren't birthing persons who identify as one or the other. It's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. You know, and they say, oh, well, we're being progressive. We're being forward-thinking. We're doing everything we can for equality, but they're destroying the rights of women. They're destroying what men should be, which is those who stand up for what's right in society and protect those who can't protect themselves. It's sad. Now, chapter 20. Ooh, chapter 20. The rest of Israel does not reply well. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, so see, she was his concubine, now she's called, he's called her husband, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me, surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel, because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you children of Israel, 
Give your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred, throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, and a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provision for the people, that when they come to Gibeah in Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. So notice... Um, the adjectives that are being used here, things like lewd and outrage, uh, as followers of Christ, we should see every sexual sin the same way. And they basically said, you know what? We're going to go up against Gibeah. We're not going to take all 400,000. We're going to split it up, 10 out of every 100. Um, because, you know, Gibeah really wasn't that big of a place. So the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united to get together as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now listen very carefully here to verse 13. Now therefore deliver up the men, the perverted men who are in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. Right? This is a reasonable request. There's no reason to go to war. These guys committed a crime. Give them up. We'll deal with them. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. So instead of giving them up, they decide to protect, or at least attempt to protect those who committed this perverted crime. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Among all these were 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. Now, beside Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. When the children of Israel rose and went to the house of God to inquire of God, they said, Which of us shall go up first to battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah first. Now, what question didn't they ask? Should we go up against the children of Benjamin? Right? That's the first question they should have asked. Now, we're going to see they inquire of the Lord multiple times, but they assumed that God wanted them to go to war with Benjamin. They assumed. Were the Benjamites wrong? Yes. Were the Israelites correct that the Benjamites needed to be punished for this sin? Yes. For the, I mean, it wasn't just a sin, it was a crime. Right? This, this, this was correct. But they should have asked, should we go up at all? Instead, they said, who should go up first? And God says, Judah. So the children of Israel arose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. The men of Israel put themselves in battle array to fight against them at Gibeah. Verse 21. The children of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and on that day cut down to the ground 22,000 men of the Israelites. And the people, that is the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and again formed a battle line at the place where they had put themselves in array on the first day. Then the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I again draw near for battle against the children of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So the children of Israel approached the children of Benjamin on the second day. And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. All these drew the sword. I, something's wrong. Right? 
Verse 26, And all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Then Israel set men in ambush all around Gibeah. So this is really um, fascinating to me. So basically what they did is they came up with a plan and asked the Lord to bless it. Instead of coming to the Lord and asking for his plan. And that's what we should do. Now, finally, they do that. They, they come fasting, weeping, sacrifices, asking the high priest to inquire of the Lord for them. Right? Why didn't they just do that to begin with? How often? Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, because you guys are all better than me. Um, but do we come up with a plan and then ask God to bless our plan instead of seeking God for his plan and letting him guide us into what he wants us to do. Because this time, when they follow God's plan, well, it's going to work out a little bit better, you're going to see. Uh, I do personally find it quite interesting that, um, what did we lose? 24,000 and then 18,000? 18, 40,000. 40 is a number of judgment. So why did God, allow 40,000 of the Israelites to fall by the hands of the Benjamites, who were clearly the ones who were wrong. Was this a punishment on the whole nation, not just the tribe of Benjamin? Was this because they failed to wait on the Lord? I'm not entirely sure. I think it could be either one. I think it could be both. Maybe it's something else that I don't see. But whatever the case, it's interesting. Now, I do want to point out one more thing, then we'll move forward. Uh, two more things, actually, sorry. Um, the left-handed Benjamites were famous for their ability to use a sling. Um, and this is not just in the Bible. This is actually historical, that there were left-handed people who could use a sling. And they could, they were accurate to a hair's breadth. And the stones they would sling would weigh up to a pound. That's pretty darn accurate. Just saying. Um, also, though, in verse 28, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, was the priest at the time of this event. Well, we know the book of Judges takes place over a period of somewhere around three to 400 years. However, Phineas was anointed high priest after his father Eleazar died in Joshua chapter 24. So this event had to take place within, what, 80 years? 100 years of them coming into the land, depending on how old Phineas was when he actually died? Right? So this did not happen at the end of the book of Judges. So that lends credence to the fact that these last few chapters, at least, are not chronological. So as we continue, it gets worse. Verse 30. The children of Israel went up against the children of Benjamin on the third day, put themselves in battle array against Gibeah the other towns. So the children of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. They began to strike down and kill some of the people as at other times in the highways. 
one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel. And the children of Benjamin said, They are defeated before us as at first. But the children of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel arose from their place and put themselves in battle array at Baal Tamar. Then Israel's men in ambush burst forth from their position in the plains of Geba. And 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was upon them. Then the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So the children of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel had given ground to the Benjamites because they relied on the men in ambush who they had set against Gibeah. And the men in ambush quickly rushed upon Gibeah. The men in ambush spread out and struck the whole city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men of ambush uh, was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city. Whereupon the men of Israel would turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 of the men of Israel. For they said, surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and there was the whole city going up in smoke to heaven. And when the men of Israel turned back, the men of Benjamin panicked, for they saw that disaster had come upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and whoever came out of the cities they destroyed in their midst. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily trampled them down as far as the front of Gibeah toward the east. And 18,000 men of Benjamin fell. All these were men of valor. Then they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and they cut down 5,000 of them on the highways, and they pursued them relentlessly up to guide them and killed 2,000 of them. So all who fell of Benjamin that day were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimon, and they stayed at the rock of Rimon for four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword. From every city, man and beast, all who were found, they also set fire to all the cities they came to. It seems like a lot, doesn't it? What did they want to do? They wanted to punish the 700 vile men from the tribe of Benjamin in the city of Gibeah. The Benjamites refused. And as a result, almost the entire tribe of Benjamin is wiped out. We're going to see that a little bit more as we get into 21. But not just the men who committed the vile sin, but those who approved of it as well, as the rest of the tribe tried to protect the evildoers. The, the thing that came to mind was Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And essentially what that's saying is, it's not just the people who commit specific sins and refuse to come to Christ who have this punishment coming, the wages of sin is death, we know, according to Romans 6.23, but also those who approve of it. And that, to me, is demonstrated by the tribe of Benjamin here. 
because we have a lot of people in our world who say, well, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't do that, but more power to them, right? Or it's okay if they do this, or it's okay if they do that. They're not hurting anybody. I wouldn't want to be them on Judgment Day. Chapter 21. Now, chapter 21 is interesting here, and you're going to see why. Now, the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin, his wife. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God. Oops, I lost my place. Until evening, they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. Man, they got to kill everybody. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters or wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. Dude. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them back to the camp at Shiloh, which was in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin, who were at the Rock of Rimon, and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive, the women of Jabesh Gilead, and yet they had not found enough for them, and the people grieved for Benjamin, because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel." This is what I would call a, a dome scratcher kind of moment. Like, what in the world are you thinking, right? They're upset over Benjamin. What don't they do? They don't go back to the house of God, back to Phineas, back to make sacrifices, inquire of the Lord. How are we going to keep the tribe of Benjamin going, right? They made a stupid vow. None of us will give our daughters to the Benjamites. So what do they do? They made a dumb vow. They didn't inquire of the Lord. So they have a second civil war going up and murdering all the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, something that God did not tell them to do, killing men, women, and children, which was certainly something God would never have told them to do because these were fellow Israelites. Right, Jabesh Gilead was in the land allotted to the half-tribe of Manasseh that crossed the Jordan and settled in the land. God would have never told them to do this. But they did it anyway. And why did they do it? To cover up their own dumb vow with greater wickedness. They made a dumb vow, and now they're going to do evil to cover up their dumb vow. And as we discussed when we, we dealt with this with Jephthah, 
A vow that causes you to sin is not a vow that needs to be kept. That's number one. Number two, doing something worse to cover up something bad will never make it better. We have a famous saying in, in the English language, right? Two wrongs don't make a right, right? I, I've done something horrible. I've committed some sin. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lie about it. I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to run away from it. Then no one will know. Ooh, look at me. I got away from it. No, you didn't. You got away with nothing. And what you did is you compounded sin on top of sin. That's why James tells us that when sin gives birth and becomes full grown, it brings forth death. Because the more you try to cover it up, the worse it gets. Now, ultimately, they did find 400 virgins, called the Benjamites that were up by the rock of Ryman and said, hey, guys, we found 400 virgins for you. Now, I mean, from the Benjamites, that probably sounded pretty good. So they come on down. And then what do they do? Well, they start whining and crying and weeping because there weren't enough women for the 600 Benjamites who were left. And notice verse 15, that they blame God for it. Because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. I don't think this was God's fault. Now, ultimately, if we're going to blame anybody, we blame the wickedness of the men in Jabesh Gilead. Second, we can blame these people for killing other Israelites to try to find wives after they wiped out most of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around here, but I don't think any of it falls on God. Mm -hmm. Oh, it does. It gets better. Um, we don't get to blame God for the poor decisions of human beings. And so often people, you know, they like to say that. Well, why does God allow evil in the world? You know, God does give us the capacity to choose. We do not have to choose to do evil. We don't have to choose that. Right? God has given us a way out. He's given us his son. He's given us, for those of us who know his son, his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word to guide us. Right? We don't have to choose to do evil. But when a person in their own sin chooses to do something that is evil or wrong or vile or wicked, that is not God's fault. And we don't blame God for the wickedness in the world. The wickedness is in the world. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Why is there wickedness in the world? Because of man's disobedience to God. It is not God's fault. Anyways, verse 16, right? And John said it right. It gets better, right? So we wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. Maybe the Benjamites deserved it. They probably did, at least to some extent, right? To cover up their dumb vow, they go and murder a bunch of those from the tribe of Manasseh, steal their virgin women, but there aren't enough. So they come up with another plan that's even stupider than the first one. Sorry, it's just true. And the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who remain since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? 
And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that the tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters for the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. They didn't have to follow that vow, right? I've already said that, but it's just annoying me. Then they said, in fact, ooh, somebody's like, I've got an idea. There is a yearly feast of the Lord. It wasn't a feast of the Lord, by the way, but I'll get into that in a moment. There is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin, saying, Go, lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. What? So our plan because we murdered these people but couldn't come up with enough wives, is we're going to plan a mass kidnapping of young women. Tell me how that makes sense. It shall be, verse 22, right? So then we're going we're gonna to have to placate these guys that when the fathers or their brothers come up to us to complain, that we'll say, hey, guys, be kind for our sakes because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For... It is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. Right? So basically, when the brothers or the fathers come to complain, go, hey, you're not guilty of the oath. We kidnapped them. It's not your fault. You didn't give them to the Benjamites. What? Right? I, I, I am just astounded by this. So the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. Well, we're going to stop for just a second, and we'll take the last couple verses. Um, so this is, there, there's two problems, three problems, eight problems, a hundred problems here. Right? First, now we have, we have a foolish vow, then we have murder, then they took these virgin daughters. It wasn't enough. So to continue trying to cover up for the vow, they make a plan to go kidnap these women and then to placate the brothers and fathers who come out to complain. And all of it, notice what they didn't do. They never went to the house of God. They never went to inquire of the Lord. Now, they said that this feast at Shiloh was a feast of the Lord, and that is inaccurate. Now, please keep in mind, the Bible is not inaccurate. The Bible is simply recording what these people thought, right? So they said, oh, there's this feast of the Lord. How do we know this wasn't a feast of the Lord? Because if you go back, we went through all the feasts back in the book of Leviticus, remember? Was there ever a feast commanded by God where the women were supposed to go out into the fields and vineyards and dance? Never one. So that means that this was a pagan feast. And this dancing in the vineyards and in the fields, uh, this dancing in nature, was usually in some relation probably to Ashtoreth, the fertility, the false fertility goddess of, of the Canaanites. Um, but it was some kind of fertility dance. This was not a feast commanded by God. But that, again, shows the corruption of the people 
that this pagan feast, or at least some sort of pagan practice that may have been incorporated with the feast of the Lord, was being practiced in the land, something that God had never commanded. Of course, this plan worked when the rest of the Benjamites get their wives. In verse 24, the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And notice verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When every person does what's right in their own eyes, this creates anarchy and inexcusable evil. We have to be guided by God's law or evil will become normal. And this is what we see today. We need to be protected from ourselves. And God has given us his word to guide us in how to do that very thing. What was true in Israel is true in our society and even in the church. When people refuse to recognize God as king, when people refuse to recognize his word as truth, and when people do whatever they want, there are serious consequences for it. And I think we are experiencing those consequences in our culture today. So I did something a little different now that we're done with the book of Judges, technically. I kind of started thinking, well, what have we learned from the book of Judges? Now, I wrote myself a little note here, probably too much to recount here, but there are a few things that really kind of came to my mind. First, God can and does use anyone. Right? We have seen him use multiple people who were sinful, who were disobedient, but God used them to achieve his purposes. Now, we're not celebrating their disobedience. We're not celebrating their sin. We're recognizing that God can use anyone, which should make us feel pretty good. Right? There's hope for each of us. Second, we are who God says we are, not who we think we are or who the world says we should be. We learned about this from Gideon. This is one I put in here. Um, please don't see it the wrong way. When men won't step up, God will use women. Now, I know that sounds a little sexist, but we learned this from Deborah, right? She wasn't supposed to be the one to lead the Israelites into war. But Barak was like, I can't do it, Deborah. Go with me. I'm afraid. She goes, fine. But then everybody's going to give credit to a woman for this victory. Now, God obviously uses women in his service. We're about to read the book of Ruth, right? We're going to see a beautiful book where God used a woman really to create the line that Jesus would be born through, right? When we get to the New Testament, we see all the women who supported Jesus' ministry. You get to the book of Acts, we see women like Priscilla, who were involved in discipling other people. You get into the various epistles, and over and over and over again, Paul mentions women who were valuable to ministry. Right? So I'm not saying that women aren't supposed to serve in ministry or everything of the sort. The only thing the Bible forbids is a woman being a pastor, elder in a church. However, I think it's a sad indictment against men who will not step up and be men of God that they're supposed to be so that women have to do it. Number four, 
Don't let your God-given potential be wasted because of sin. We learned that from Samson. And we know from places like Jeremiah 29, Ephesians 2, Psalm 139, and many others, that God has a plan and purpose for each of us. And I pray that none of us wastes that with our own foolishness. And finally, moral relativism does not work. When people do what is right in their own eyes or live according to their truth, nothing good comes of it. God is the absolute moral authority. He has given us his absolute truth in the Bible, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, we must live accordingly. Next week, we will dive into the book of Ruth, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. Um, love the book of Ruth. I am hoping to take all four chapters in one go. That's my goal anyway. We will see in the book of Ruth, don't give me that look, I'm really going to try to do all four chapters in one week. We will see that even in the midst of evil, God was still at work doing wonderful things among his people. Until then, let's pray. Father, thank you for all that we've learned from the book of Judges. I, I pray, and I pray this a lot, Lord, for myself, for all of us as we hear and study and get into the word of God. Don't let it fall on deaf ears. And don't let us just absorb it as information, but let us apply it as truth to our own lives. Father, I pray that you would give us your grace to walk with you the rest of this week and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.